Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, today is a big day down at the state capitol, day 40, the final day of the legislative session. It's an, an interesting day uh, because there are some, I think it's fair to say, beloved rituals that take place as the day goes on. Uh, there's frantic activity, uh, and there's also some uh, a potential treachery on this last day as uh, legislators find ways to sneak in at the last minute bills that no one was anticipating. And uh, uh, quite often we find uh, a couple days later uh, things have passed that no one thought was uh, coming. So there's a lot of fascinating history to this day uh, today. There are a number of bills that uh, have had had a pretty high profile throughout the session that are still up for grabs down there. So we're going to talk about all of that and more. I've just a great panel of political journalists today, journalists who cover the state capitol or have covered it. In the case of my Monday partner, Jim Galloway, I don't know about you, Jim, but I'm really glad that you and I are at a stage in our careers where we're not going to be down at the Capitol wondering, are they really going to go to midnight tonight? I'm really tired, and it's only 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, this is that, that, that was always the kind of the my feet hurt day, uh, because you have to, you, you're constantly prowling and patrolling, looking for all these nooks and crannies where, where legislators, where conference committees hide, where you've got maybe three lawmakers trying to, trying to draft the, the final version of something that's pretty controversial controversial and it's just it is it is a wearing wearying my 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 hat off my hats off to everybody who's who's uh who will stay up late tonight to get this done yeah um well one of those people is riley bunch she's a gpb news's public policy reporter and has been covering the capitol riley you ready to go did you had a did you have a good breakfast you ready for a long day and night you know, I'm planning out my breakfast, my lunch, what snacks am I going to take? It's going to be a very long day and one of those where um, at the very beginning of the session, you never think it's going to come. And then when it comes, it came really fast. And so it's just going to be a very hectic day down there. Yeah, Raul Bali joins us as well. He's the politics reporter at WABE. Raul, how many sessions have you covered at this point? Let's see. On Now you have to ask me a question like that because... I left for a couple of years um, for Augusta well, and Washington, D.C. rough guess. I don't know, <clears throat> seven to ten? Okay. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you for being with us before before the long day gets going. Um, I say for last, James Salzer, who has now been, James, you've been covering the sessions for a very, very long time. James Salzer uh, covers politics for the AJC. He is probably the journalist who knows more about the state budget than many of the legislators do. There are legislators who turn to Salzer to find out what's happening with the budget. How are you, James? Good, good. This is my 33rd, I think, finding out. Oh, 
Oh. <laughs> 32nd, 33rd, I can't remember. Wow. All right. So you had a terrific piece uh, in the Sunday AJC in which you uh, uh, shared with readers what that 40th day is all about. And I want to read just one graph of your writing uh, and then let you uh, expand on it. You say, uh, it's a time when the practiced procrastination of three months becomes freewheeling chaos as lawmakers vote dozens and dozens of time before the clock strikes midnight, sometimes making decisions on legislation they haven't read or seen. They have to trust the colleagues standing at the front of the House or Senate to let them know what they are voting on. And you quote Calvin Smyrie, who we'll talk about in a couple minutes, as saying, uh, this is a day to put your seatbelt on, sine die, there's nothing like it. James, first of all, uh, let's get that pronunciation straight. Uh, it's Latin, uh, without day, right, Salzer? Right, it's right. really sine die, but not in the Georgia capital. Nope. <laughs> just like it, just like uh, 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 Cairo is Cairo, and and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and Albany is whatever, however you want to pronounce it when you're down there. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it's. A day you prepare for, and, it, and when I use the word or phrase practice uh, procrastination, it, it, it months and months and months, and if you're a reporter, you follow this and you're, you're like, man, this, this, this got to be a, way to, a better way of doing this. Because every year the same thing kind of happens is a lot of the big bills get, they don't really start working on them until the 38th, 39th, 40th day where they really, you know, where you really find out what they want. Um, what both sides want. So uh, that's, you know, that has a lot to do with the last minute stuff. And then there's always uh, um, a bill that somebody really wants. And, you know, for a couple of sessions in a row now, we've had, we've gone past or right around midnight simply because a lobbyist wanted some bill and, and, and uh, uh, either the house or the Senate were, were on board with it. And, so it went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, you know, this year you might have, for instance, uh, uh, legislation that's fallen under the kind of uh, going under the radar, the CAPCO uh, Rural Jobs Tax Credit Bill, um, which has mm. held up the session um, in the last 10 years. It's probably held up the session three times. Um, it's, a, it's a bill the House li- uh, favors, the Senate thinks is a scam, um, and uh, among the lobbyists, uh, Supporting this are the speaker's son and and other prominent kind of people in the hall, and so they're they're not going to let up on a bill like that through. And those are the kind of things that, like you know, the average citizen is probably not following very closely. But those are the kind of things that the, they fight about in the last minute. Um, Jim, I want to talk in a minute about some of the high-profile bills that still remain to be dealt with today. But before we do, let's make clear to our listeners. Um, the legislature, by law, can only meet for 40 days, period. It's a hard and fast rule. Now, it used to be that um, we all thought that you that meant you had to stop at midnight on the 40th day. We've learned in more recent years that isn't really true at all. Salzer just made that clear, that the day can continue going on past midnight. 
But um, <laughs> there have been, real quickly, a piece of history, Jim. In 1964, they were in the middle of uh, congressional redistricting. They hadn't in the House passed the, the new lines, and it was approaching midnight. And one of the most famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, legislators of his day, Denmark Groover, literally went up to the balcony in the back of the House, leaned over the railing, to grab the clock that sat there and to try to stop the hands from reaching midnight. And the picture of Groover hanging over the railing is one of the uh, real famous pictures of Georgia history. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, let me see, uh, he, he, he was, uh, Denmark Groover, Denny Groover was the same guy who, who introduced the, the 1956 flag with the Confederate battle emblem. He was a flying, yeah. he, he was one of Chenault's flying tigers during World War II in China. Yeah. And uh he was he was he was also famous for uh for uh, uh what's now called catfishing a bill uh, uh making a bill inert uh and 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 uh, nothing uh often on the last day of the session by maybe moving a comma or inserting a semicolon uh they called it grooverizing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get right down to some of the measures we're going to be watching very closely. Uh Riley um, let me just pick one arbitrarily. Um, we are waiting to see what's going to happen to the bill that would establish new laws around Georgia elections, right? Tell us what's going on there and what you're looking for. Yeah, so this bill has seen quite a bit of back and forth in the last kind of down to the wire. You know, when it was first introduced, that was not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, it was this huge omnibus bill that held all these things in it, um, including, you know, DBI having the authority to investigate fraud claims. There was a provision in there that um, public the public can inspect unsealed paper ballots, so a lot of these things. But then we saw it stripped down last week. Was it last week? Man, time, time just flies. It was stripped down to about a page, and it just maintained one provision that had to do with um, companies letting workers off for early voting. Um, and stipulating that they have time to do that. But this morning, <laughs> there was another meeting um, where they added back in a couple provisions, the GBI provision and the, the inspection of unsealed paper ballots provision. So this, this bill has seen a lot of back and forth. There's been a lot of pushback from local elections officials, and I think it can really come down to the wire of what it will actually look like if it gets to the floor. Raul, we should point out that the House passed the larger measure that Riley is talking about with many provisions, including public inspection of actual hand ballots um, and GBI uh, uh, giving them the authority to step in and investigate what they consider to be a possible election wrongdoing. The Senate stripped all of that out. Uh, but as Riley points out, now some of it's back in, despite the fact that many local election officials testified saying they thought this bill was going to make their lives more difficult. Um, so the question is going to be what passes uh, uh, today? I think one of the things that will pass is GBI mm. and having the GBI have original jurisdiction of elections. Now, the question is, how strong is that language going to be in the end? That's probably being negotiated. But understand, very early on in the process, that's something that the House Speaker talked about uh, is something that he felt like needed to be done for elections. So th I think what I'm going to be watching there is how strong 
is that language. I think the rest of it is, it's gonna, again, going to be what level of, of oversight of ballots and, and inspections is going to be. Uh, I do think something does get out on elections today. You know, Jim, what's interesting about this bill is that before the session, the governor told the Georgia Chamber of Commerce that he saw no reason to pass a new election law this year, that he felt SB 202, the major bill that came after the 2020 elections, was enough. Um, Speaker Ralston had said for quite a while now that he thought there ought to be some measure that would allow GBI to investigate potential election um, uh, problems. Um, it, but So there's been a lot of criticism of the fact that the governor seems to have backtracked to allow this bill, whatever final form it will take, to come forward. Yeah, it's, it's uh, look, uh, uh, elections have become something like abortion within the George GOP. They, they are now a base issue, and you, you have to show that you're doing something even if it's not a whole lot, even if it's, but you have to give your, you, the, the effort here is to give uh, to give uh, House Republicans and Senate Republicans something to go home to and something they can point to and say, look, I, I, I saved Georgia's election process, even though there has been no fraud detected, uh, nothing, nothing significant, significant happening. Uh, every, 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 every allegation has been uh, kind of uh, uh, shown to be either false or just so small that it it uh, it doesn't take uh, it doesn't carry any weight. Uh, but you got to do something, and and this is it. Um, James, let me ask you to start us off on another measure that we're uh, going to be watching closely today, and that's a bill which for all practical purposes, bans the mailing of the abortion pill to pregnant women in Georgia. Right, James? Right, right. Yeah, you would have to, you'd essentially, it, it makes a pregnant woman go to doctor and the doctor give her the okay to get the pill. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of along the lines of the election bill you were just talking about. It's, just, it's, it's a purely base bill you have to have. Um, you have to make some effort to um, ban, uh, restrict, if not ban, abortion um, if you're in a Republican primary this year. And so, um, it's, as I said, like the election bill where um, got to have that, got to be able to say that in, a, in your address to the state convention and, and, you know, get the support of people who, to them, that's their number one issue. So, Raul, since... Since politics in an election year particularly is so important in a legislative session, <clears throat> excuse me, um, this is one of those measures which, in, in, similarly to the election bill we just talked about, where we understand that the Republican majority is looking for measures that w will please the base. But abortion particularly is a bill that um, many of these people running statewide at least are going to have to be accountable for when they turn to a general election campaign after uh, after the primaries are over. Raul? It, it, it reminds you of the challenges of former President Donald Trump. You know, do these things help you in a general election, I mean, in, uh, in a primary, but then what happens in a general election? And one other thing I do want to mention uh, <clears throat> about the abortion bill that I think that Riley has also pointed out is is bringing in the university system of Georgia within that bill, not allowing for the dispensing of those abortion bills. So it is there are still 
and I've always seen them, those single-issue uh, single abortion voters are out there. And that's, again, on a different thing, reminiscent of the elections voters, that you've got a handful of election voters that are single-issue voters. Yes, it's going to, in some cases, help in, in May. The question is, what is it happens in November? Riley? i just add really quickly that, you know, a lot of the bills of the bills that we see that are pleasing of the, the kind of the red voter base are bills that we're seeing across the country. And this one is also one that we're seeing across the country in, in less of a known way than CTR bills and things like that. But this is um, a kind of a, the, a coordinated push against a ruling that Biden, the Biden administration made during the pandemic, which was to allow kind of the free mailing of um, these abortion-inducing pills, right? Um, so it's not just something that we're seeing in Georgia, and I think that's just really on theme with a lot of the bills for this legislative session. Um, James, um, I know the budget today will be a, a big focus of your attention, but what do you, do you have any sense of where this abortion bill is headed today? Where the abortion bill is headed? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I haven't, yeah. I uh, the abortion pill bill. Yeah. Oh, Bill, yeah. Okay. I haven't followed it that closely, Riley or Raul, either of you got any sense of that? So right now, right now the bill is— Go ahead, I'm Raul, but— Yes, I know. The bill right now (laughs) is—I'm having fun. We're already punchy, and it's only nine-something in the morning. Uh, It right now is in the House uh, Rules Committee— I, I have an expectation it will at least come out for a vote and then uh, be on the floor. I have not been told that, but that's where the bill is right now. And, and how far it's come down the line, I do, I do expect to at least see it out on the floor today. Yeah, Jim? One thing to remember about this this particular bill, bill uh, is that is that it's uh, – it, it's it's uh, one of those uh, one of those measures that's playing out in anticipation of Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court this right. this summer, and 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 you've seen this pop up in 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 places like Missouri and elsewhere where you have legislation uh, barring treatment that arrives from other states. And that's 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 one of the things that this bill is targeting. The, uh, in in many of these cases, uh, these these uh, abortion pills would be would be would, would be coming from a, a a a warehouse outside of the state of Georgia, and and I think that's what uh, a lot of the concern is. All right, um, that's one that we'll all be watching very closely. Uh, James, the, we're also looking today at the difference between the Senate and the House. They both want to give Georgians uh, income tax relief. They both are pushing for uh, a cut in the income tax rate for the state. Um, what do you think is happening with that? And just explain to us what's been going on with those measures. So the, the, the speaker uh, wanted to uh, lower the income tax. He wanted a big tax cut, uh, which, which he does pretty much every year there is an election. He goes for a big income tax cut. So he would cut the rate. He would eliminate the progressivity of the income tax and cut the rate from 575 to 525, I believe, um, maximum rate of uh, what you pay on your taxes. And they would get rid of a lot of deductions. They, they would kind of and, and give bigger exemptions. And the end result would be about a billion dollar uh, tax cut every year uh, under this plan. The problem with it is by eliminating uh, uh, some of the deductions they're eliminating, 
a whole bunch of people would actually have uh, see their taxes go up under the plan because they could no longer deduct some of the things they're deducting now. Um, Senate took it over. They want to lower the rate to 4.99%, uh, but they leave the deductions in. Um, the Senate plan recognizes that, you know, we're in an economy now where we're, the, the state revenues are still flush uh, in part because of all the federal uh, COVID relief money that have, has been flowing in the last couple of years. So we have a flush economy, but um, economists are expecting the growth in state revenue to decline. So in the Senate plan, if, if uh, revenue declined um, or did not continue to grow at a certain level, I think it's 3%, um, then it would delay this phasing in of a income tax. It's kind of a, a income tax, but it's kind of a, uh, you know, fail safe to, to keep uh, the state from, you know, if you're in a situation where you, you are, your, your revenue is off by a billion dollars, you don't want to add to it by spending taxes a billion dollars, um, therefore having to, you know, lay off the state patrol or whatever. Um, or, or cut, you know, teacher funding or whatever. Uh, so um, that's the kind of the difference between the two. One, one builds in a mechanism that looks at whether you have enough, essentially you have the money to pay for a tax cut, and one just goes ahead and does it. <laughs> um, Jim, it, it, I, the, the, the fact of the matter is that um, an income tax cut like this is um, – fine for people who file state income tax and have reasonable income to report. Um, but it, um, but, but it, it, it's interesting that the Senate version of this seems a little bit more conservative in, in that it would scale things back if revenues don't keep up with the pace that the, um, the House version of the bill uh, would need, right? Right, and 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 I think, and, and James can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the the Senate version uh, to compensate for that that conservatism, it would actually lower uh, the the income taxes slightly slightly more than the House would. I think to to four point nine nine percent. Right. It, okay, but it, what did you, James? What does that mean for the rest of? I mean, what what does that mean for lower income Georgians? Uh, I I'm never quite understand. The disparity between again, I started to talk about people who file have have decent uh, returns to file. Um, whatever right. I mean, have have. What, tell me about that. About so, about what that does to lower income Georgians. So the in if you lower the if you lower the uh, a, a rate, you lower an income tax rate. By nature, um, the wealthy, the higher income people are going to get most of the tax break. Because they're, they make more money, and so a higher percentage of I mean, that, that money is being taxed at a lower rate. But in, in, the, in, in this case, um, the Senate included an earned income tax credit, which is designed to help those who earn uh, $20,000, dollars $40,000 or less. Um, and uh, it increases uh, deductibles, or excuse me, the exemption, standard exemptions. But it, it, it's starting... It's been phased in over eight years, and the low rate for somebody making, a family making $20,000 a year, the low rate kicks in the first year. So they're, they're kind of building it up. With, with, so the, the next year, then the, then the income level that gets this 4.99 goes up, and then the next year it goes up to eventually, where eventually we hit all income. So the, at least the Senate version 
kind of like makes a point of saying we're going to make sure that the lowest taxes um, are starting out for people that earn families that earn twenty thousand dollars or less. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Let's do this. Let's go to our first break of the show. And when we come back, there are a few more, uh, again, high-profile issues that are up for consideration at the Capitol. We'll talk about that and a lot more when Political Rewind continues. We have a stellar group of legislative reporters with us today getting set to cover the, excuse me, 40th and final day of the legislative session. Riley Bunch, GPB News, James Salzer of the AJC and Raul Bali of WABE, plus uh, Jim Galloway, who's covered, like I have, way too many sessions of the Georgia General Assembly uh, over the years. Uh, Riley, um, gamble, you know, here's a perennial issue. Should Georgia finally uh, uh, allow gambling in the state, whether it's horse race, gambling, paramutual wagering, whether it's casinos, whether it's sports betting? Uh, this is a bill that comes up every year. It would it, it requ- we are for the most part, you would require a vote by by voters across the state before it could be enacted, which means, uh, if you're going to have a referendum on, on this, you've got to have two-thirds of both the House and Senate approving it. Where does the gambling measure stand? It looked like it was gone, but it's it seems to be bubbling up again today. Yeah, and that's what we always see with gambling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you said it in the beginning. It's one of those issues and one of those bills that is always coming up on the final day of session, and all the reporters <laughs> in the press car are like, is gambling going to come up? Is gambling going to come up? It's it's interesting to watch, and you know that this the push right now is for sports betting, um, and it's for a constitutional amendment to ask voters if they want sports betting, um, so it would be on the ballot. And, and at this point, it doesn't seem like Republicans have enough votes within their caucus to get it right. There's this kind of two factions of Republicans who want um, sports betting and the, the industry and the money we bring to Georgia, but there's also kind of the conservative push against it, right? But um, I thought um, Kevin Riley brought up a really interesting point um, in the last show when we talked about gambling is that the, the kind of the boom of the sports right now in Georgia and the, the sports teams and the lobbyists kind of feel like they're missing out on something that all the other states have, right? So will that add to the push? We'll see, we'll see today. And another a point on gambling that, that I want to bring up that, that sometimes is left out is what happens to money that comes into the state of Georgia from gambling? And I, I want to tell a quick story. I had a young staffer with me who was asking me a question about gambling. And literally what I did was I stood outside the Georgia House and asked the next five lawmakers who walked in. I said, any five lawmakers, I'm going to ask what do you want to do with the money? One said needs-based scholarship. One said I would never vote for gambling. One said rural health care. One said um, rural development and broadband. Once you get through the number of lawmakers who will support gambling, the question is where does the money even go? So that's just as important as just the, as, as what's actually in the bill and what gambling is allowed. Yeah, another part of the calculation that we haven't talked about is is the fact that these constitutional amendments uh, traditionally have been used as GOTV uh, 
uh, mechanisms uh, in November. Uh, getting Tell out them the what vote. GOP TV means. That's, Thank that's, you. That's getting getting out the getting out the vote, and and so you have to look at at, at gambling as an issue as as to who it would motivate to come to the polls uh, with with more enthusiasm. And and the answer here is not Republicans. In in all large part, in large part because of the social conservative uh, uh, faction within that party, that that you're likely to have more enthusiasts for sports betting among Democrats, and I think that that that's going to be part of the the the, the calculation in a GOP controlled legislature. You know, James, you have been around long enough to remember way back in the early 90s when Zell Miller ran on establishing the state lottery. That was his big campaign issue. But what we remember, it did help him win election, but it also came close to losing him re-election because of the conservative backlash against what they saw as gambling. And in some ways, there is some of that element still in the legislature today, uh, James. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I kind of have to disagree a little bit with Jim on this issue, is I think that it is it, in, in 1992, when they had the, the lottery um, vote, um, it brought out conservative voters, because there were more conservative voters who wanted to, um, who, who considered gambling bad. It's like an alcohol issue, or, you know, if they, if they ever put marijuana on the ballot, um, it, it, it brings out a very passionate group of people saying, you know, we want to stop this terrible thing from happening. Um, and, and I don't know how much, um, I don't know that, that people are going to come out to vote specifically for um, the right to bet on the Braves games, but I guarantee you there's going to be people who are specifically going to come out to vote against, um, against gambling. Um, so, yeah, and that's that's you know essentially he it, uh, lottery didn't pass by a lot. Um, you think nowadays right. we're, we're like yeah, we're so used to it and you know all these wonderful hope scholarships and everything else is paid for, but it was not a easy fight. Um, they had a heck of a time on their hands getting it passed. In yeah, too. yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, I'm glad you uh, uh, you know mentioned that because that's one of the reasons this is tough today. And what I'm hearing from our panel and from others is that. Coming up with two-thirds majorities in both bodies is going to be pretty tricky to yeah. try to get gambling uh, through this year. The other, um, the other point, the other point I would make on it is that is that is that um, is that it's it's ironic that the um, the argument that sports betting people uh, lobbyists are making um, is that well this is already going on, so we're just going to regulate it. And I'm thinking, you know, the first thing that popped in my head was, you know. Well, why don't you, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's dozens of things, you know, uh, marijuana is still being smoked in the state. Why don't you just regulate? I mean, it is, you know, there's a whole host of things that are, are going on that we have deemed, you know, the state deems illegal. Um, but, uh, they, they didn't, you know, it, it, it happens. And so we, we don't just go, well, cause something happened, you know, we're going to go ahead and legalize it. Okay. Um, Riley, we still have one measure, I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that would address how teachers can teach about race and Georgia history. This, of course, has been, I think it's arguably the most contentious uh, issue of the entire session, along with some of the other measures that seek to give the state more control in classrooms uh, in Georgia. 
Um, where does what is this bill? I personally have trouble understanding anything specific about this measure. It feels so vaguely worded that it's hard to understand what teachers are going to be prohibited from doing, what they're going to be allowed to do. Talk about this a little. Yeah, so you kind of, you know, you're asking the same question that everyone else is asking at this point. And uh, this session has been such a spotlight on education policy and how partisan battles have created a like have leaked into our education system right so they're um on friday one of kemp's priorities the parental bill of rights passed which kind of outlined a process for um parents to request weeks and weeks of lesson plans and kind of object to things that their students were being taught and the the other bill that is left that we're going to see today is the divisive concepts bill and other people like to note is that the quote critical race theory bill right even though it is so important to mention that critical race theory is not taught in georgia k-12 through schools here and it's always the caveat that we throw in there but this bill has gone through a lot a lot of different changes it basically outlines a bunch of topics like they call it divisive topics that um, teachers can have to stay away from in their classrooms and I think that the vagueness of the bill points to the more important part which is the message that this is sending right you know it is a message that teachers uh, that people don't trust what teachers are teaching in their classrooms that lawmakers have to have this kind of power over you know wh- how race is taught and how these really difficult conversations in Georgia are are taught in classrooms and with kids and and op- opponents of it say it takes away a lot of critical thinking points right so we will see um, it's 1084 it's going to come back up in the house today and uh, get a vote um, it's expected to pass because it was one of Kemp's legislative priorities as well yeah, and and um, uh, also important is that the the lead sponsor in the Senate is Butch Miller, who's in a race for lieutenant governor, uh, and so that and and that does matter on a uh, that matters on a whole a host of uh, of measures that will come up today. This it's it's the problem the problem here is that we are reaching a a a, a tipping point in Georgia uh, demographically that we we, we are we are. In, in 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 less than a decade, Georgia is likely to be a, a majority minority state, if you will. And a lot of these, uh, is, I mean, Gwinnett is probably the, the the best example. And it has just has, I mean, it has a just this burgeoning uh, population student population of minorities. And in that climate, it, it is it would be it, I think it would be a if if you don't teach U.S. history with depth. And, and by that I meaning I, I mean really examining the impact that that slavery that hundreds of years of slavery has had on the continent and 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 how that still lingers. If you don't, if you can't do that, I think you're doing a disservice to those those children who are growing up. Uh, you know, this probably be, will be less of an issue out in, in, in certain rural areas of Georgia, but in suburban and urban Georgia, I, I, I think it's a big deal. I think it's going to really impact uh, how how teachers teach and how long they stay in the profession. Raul? I'm really going to watch the reaction of teachers, both voting-wise, but what happens in the classroom, especially in the fall, because think about this. Is, is will we see some of these issues start happening in the fall ahead of the election? Um, I, I should note that I don't remember when the bills kick in, but I do believe they're July 1st. 
But watching what happens there, I mean, we could have some interesting high-profile stories. As Jim says, in that suburban suburban areas around Atlanta, I want to see what happens in Gwinnett, especially. I want to see what happens in, in, in Forsyth or Cobb with, with these bills. So, And I want to mention one other thing that I keep noticing these bills. How much is being put on principle um, with many of these things that they have this many days to respond, this many days to do this? Principles, the principles I've dealt with on, on a reporting level are very busy as is. So that's another yeah. thing I'm going to be watching. Um, James, uh, I, you filed just about, I think, an hour ago uh, a story about the budget. And, and I want to talk about it briefly because, first of all, it's interesting that this morning, you write, the House and Senate have agreed on the $30.2 billion uh, fiscal year 2023 budget. One of the things that's interesting about that is often that budget bill is a last hour kind of uh, uh, measure because it's so often used as uh, uh, um, uh, leverage for other bills. But they agreed pretty early this morning, and it does include the $2,000 pay raise for teachers. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Put it in the context of what we just talked about, how you teach about race, all the other things the state's doing in terms of putting additional burdens on teachers. But they're also getting $2,000, the the raise that campus promised. Talk about the budget in that context for a minute. Yeah, I think I think you can. You can all you have to do is go back to two thousand to two thousand one, two thousand two, to see the impact of a bill that tells you what to do as a teacher and a pay raise. Because Governor Roy Barnes did this, um, and yeah. so they, they, when you get the two thousand dollars this year, you're going to be great. I got two thousand dollars. Oh, but by the way, now they want to tell me how you know, want to give me instructions on how to teach. As you remember, in 2001, 2002, that didn't work out very well for Governor Barnes. He passed the Education Reform Act that, that, that you know, didn't have the divisive comment, uh, divisive uh, issues uh, language, obviously, but had, but, but had a lot of things in it that teachers didn't like, including the uh, end of uh, teacher tenure, uh, what, what they called teacher tenure. Um, so it, it, I think if you're... It, by next fall, when people start are, are going to be voting, I think the two thousand dollar pay raise, while they'll be reminded of it quite a bit, um, will fade if if this bill and those like it, these other education bills are going through, um, kind of puts clamps on on teaching or makes teaching more difficult or or just changes the way they do things. I think if that happens, that will be a bigger issue. Then and, and it will make up uh, or overwhelm the the two thousand dollar pay raise. If there is nothing, if we end up you know next fall and this all goes down fine and you know there's no issue, um, then the two thousand dollar pay raise is a bigger deal. Um, let me ask you a quick clarification because I may have gotten it wrong. That two thousand uh, dollar raise for teachers is in the new budget or is it in the amended budget that we've already that that uh, passed earlier? So the 2000, what they did is they put, they essentially gave a $2,000 one-time bonus in the mid-year budget. The raise is in the, the upcoming year's budget. Um, okay, so. The accounting yeah. thing. Okay, I, I wondered. It, go ahead. Well, it, the reason it was done that way, um, I assume, is because 
um, you don't you don't give pay raises with one-time money, and I assume that they use some of the surplus to pay for it. They have they're having a big okay. this year. The, the surplus and then this year budget is, is the you know the revenue is going through the roof. Next year is not going to go through the roof, so they're right. you know, preparing for that. I, I just want to be sure I'm accurate here. I don't want to give misleading yeah, no information. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a final break of the show. We got more to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind. Riley Bunch, it's been a couple of sessions now since the legislature approved the use of medical marijuana oil, essentially, for uh, registered patients, people whose children are struggling with a, a variety of illnesses that benefit from uh, cannabinoid oil, why can't they figure out this problem of establishing licenses for distribution? Why is this taking so long? You're asking all the good questions this morning, Bill. So medical <laughs> That's mar- my job, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> medical marijuana is going to be one of those bills that we're going to come down to you know, at the last minute because no one can decide how to fix this, you know, clumsy process that has been going on for years, right? So um, just to remind and give some context, there was um, uh, lawmakers voted a couple years ago to legalize production and distribution of low THC oil in Georgia, and that would go to patients that that really, really need it, right? People that suffer from chronic seizures and and, um, things that have chronic pain and things like that. And um, these patients have been getting this this life-saving drug elsewhere, even though it's, it's illegal, right? So um, this is a system that a lot of people have been waiting on for a very long time, but the licensing process just was riddled with chaos. The companies who lost out on the licenses filed protests, and now lawmakers are kind of on the hook for fixing this for all the patients that need it. So it's been a huge debate of how to fix this process. Do we scrap the licenses altogether that we gave? Do we just give more licenses? And um, just to give a little context of how no one can agree, there's been multiple bills, multiple chair um, chairs on the House side that have come up with their own um, kind of solutions, but no one could agree. So the House Speaker has stepped in and his office has stepped in. So this is one of those processes that lawmakers are really on the hook for, and but we're going to be waiting until the final minute to see how they're going to fix it. Raul, it's been several sessions since we saw those um, people, families come forward with their young children who are struggling with seizure disorders and other problems. It was heartbreaking to listen to their testimony uh, back in the day when there was you couldn't legally uh, have a license to uh, use uh, cannabinoid oil. Uh, but those images are long gone, unfortunately. And so now this becomes a logistical um, problem. It becomes a problem of who's going to get licensing and who isn't. But the heartbreak is still out there, Raul. Absolutely. And let me put numbers to it, Bill. So the last set of numbers um, from the people who have already registered for the low THC oil registry, there are 22,500 active patients along with 6,000 caregivers, 16,000 caregivers. There are a lot of people who are trying to get access to this oil who, as Riley said, are getting access to it illegally right now. I think two things is there's a frustration within that community about the people you're talking about, Bill. 
Uh, I talked to one of those one of those representatives, and and they were so frustrated. Like, what's the point of even coming down to the Capitol? What would be be the point to to drag you know our family members down there? So that was from one person. What I'm hearing is, and again, you heard Riley mention that the speaker had stepped in. My understanding is there's also a meeting involving the governor's office today, and we're you know hoping to hear something come out of that. For those who are going to be trying to follow this, it's House Bill 1425 that right now is kind of the vehicle on this legislation. And I'm going to be watching to see what is what is the game plan, because I've heard everything from let the process you know play out with licenses getting done by May 31st or July 1st, all the way to just blow up the whole system and let the state go access this oil. Jim, um, this is one of those human problems. I, I don't doubt that there are complications to figuring out how to do distribution. I, I don't doubt that it's a thorny issue, but this is one of those human issues that I think people who really look at it say, why are our elected officials not helping people in need? No, uh, 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 my wife and I had somebody in our living room, uh, some some neighbors uh, uh, in our living room just the other day, uh, and they have a granddaughter who, 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 who suffers epileptic seizures, and she's on a prescription for THC. And and they they say that just the results are are remarkable. I think you have to go back to the fact that when that when that when that the original mar- medical marijuana bill passed two, two three years ago, it was the work of Alan Peake of Macon, a Republican mm-hmm. out of Macon, and he I mean he he made that a personal very personal issue, and he 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 crossed a lot of red lines in order to get it done. But it was the effort of a single individual to get it done. And 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 Riley and and Roll, you can correct me. I'm not sure that that champion is uh, Peak is no longer in the legislature, and I'm not sure that another champion has risen up like like an Alan Peak to make himself unpopular, but to get the job done. I mean, we've seen Micah Gravely be one of those voices. State Senator Matt Brass be one of those voices. But no, you're right. Nowhere near the level that Alan Peake has been involved, was involved when he was a state lawmaker. I mean, as, as Riley mentioned, you had three separate chair people in the House work trying to work on this. Alan Powell, uh, Sharon Cooper, and Bill Workheiser. So there's a lot of hands trying to make this work instead of just one. All right. Um, before we leave today, um, James, there are a lot of significant retirements downtown at the end of this uh, session. But the one, of course, that we're all looking at most closely is after 48 years as a member of the State House, Calvin Smyrie of Columbus will move on after today. He, of course, has been um, uh, appointed by Biden or nominated by President Biden to an ambassadorship, and uh, he'll be leaving. It's there is no way to calculate what an impact James Calvin Smyre has had during his tenure in the legislature. Is there? No, and it's partly because he is the consummate dealmaker. He is he is the guy who, when Democrats were in charge, um, governors counted on him to be in the room when thing, when decisions were made and to, and to um, figure out how to get done, things done. And then when Republicans took over, they recognized his ability um, and his insistence to be involved. And he would be the guy, that, the Democrat, they would come talk to. And, and he'd share his wisdom with them. 
so it, it's it's a role that I, I don't know that anyone is even coming close to you know that kind of well I know there's no one in in either in either chamber that is anywhere close to having that kind of um, uh, recognition of someone who can uh, work across the aisle and get things done and he it's it's you know if he listed the number we don't actually know personally all the things all the deals he's made over the years but um, uh, because it, because he, he's not somebody who, who comes out and brags about getting something done. Um, he's just there when important things happen. Jim, we, uh, we know Calvin Smyrie as a soft-spoken, velvet stick kind of guy over the years. Um, and as, as James points out, he, he, he was always able to work across the aisle. He was a co-sponsor of Roy Barnes' legislation to change the state flag, um, among many, many other things that he accomplished. But he's clearly, in many ways, a throwback to the days when people worked in a bipartisan way to actually get things accomplished. That does happen at the state capitol on some measures, like the mental health bill, which the governor will sign today. But it's it's harder and harder to find. We're going to miss Calvin, aren't we? Yeah, there, there, was, a, there was a subtle strategy uh, that he always brought to the table. My favorite Calvin Smyrie story is he was he, he first came to the chamber. I, he was first elected in 1974. I was I, I was a freshman at, at UGA that year. You know that's, that's how long that, that's how long that was ago. And 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 so this 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 freshman black lawmaker from Columbus went to Tom Murphy's office for, for his first interview with with the speaker, and the speaker asked him what what uh, committee he wanted, and and Calvin said, "I want on House Ways and Means, the Tax Committee," and Murphy said, "No, I can't give that to you." So then he said he said, "What's your second choice?" and and he said, "I want to be on the House Budget Committee." And, and House Appropriations <laughs> Committee, and and Murphy said, "No, I can't get that. That's too important." And uh, give me your third choice. And so, so, so Calvin said, "Oh, I'll, I'll take House Banking." And so, and 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 said, "Okay." Murphy said, "Okay, I'll give you that." A day or two later, Murphy came back to his, to him and said, "That's what you all wanted all all along, wasn't it?" And it was. <laughs> um, I, Ra- Raul and Riley, I'm so, we are out of time. And I can't uh, at, at this moment uh, ask you to weigh in on Calvin Smyrie. But I know both of you have worked with him uh, and, and, and care about him as much as all of us who have been at the Capitol for many, many years. So Raul Bali, uh, Riley Bunch, uh, James Salzer, Jim Galloway, thank you for a wonderful conversation today. Raul. Riley and James, good luck on day 40. I hope they get out of there at 10 o'clock tonight. Forget about midnight (laughs) so you all can get some rest. We're out of time for today's show. We'll look back at what happened uh, by the end of the day today on tomorrow's show. Um, In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you all tomorrow.